Hello, and welcome back to another episode with Paul Clark, Chief Technology Officer at Ocado, and David Lane, who's the professor at the Edinburgh Centre for Robotics and a bit of an entrepreneur himself. Hi to both of you. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, delighted to be back. Great to be here. Excellent. And we are also today, myself, Henry Fenby-Taylor, Jonathan Monkley. Hello. And Simon Evans. Hello again. He's back. And of course, who could forget Neil Thompson? Hello, everyone. He's saying it in that tone because I forgot him in the first bit. So in this episode, let's talk digital twins. Let's talk national digital twins. Let's talk planetary digital twins. Let's talk intergalactic digital twins. Let's do it. We're in a good space, aren't we? Because we don't you know, we've gone through what is a digital twin. Spoke to Mark Enzer. He spoke about this concept of connecting different types of systems together from an infrastructure perspective and how that ties into a built environment. And I think we're now starting to build on this concept of interconnecting these complex systems digitally. And you know, and also what's the li- what's the limit of the scale? Where's where is the ceiling? And going beyond the built environment. So we're conceptualizing a utopian digital twin era then, where we have national digital twins in in all the major countries and they're all singing happily together as a, a flourished system of happiness and twins. So I'm I'm picturing that world. And in that world for me, everything's just operating a lot more smoothly. The weather, the transport, we're not reacting to events as much as we are acting on information that kind of managing things so that traffic travels more smoothly. The NHS isn't overwhelmed by COVID patients, that sort of thing. That's the end state in my mind. I mean, I think there's a fair bit of work to get to that point. Don't get me wrong. But the pandemic is a really good, probably relevant topic given its uh, first day of lockdown too for everyone in England. How would the planet have reacted differently to a global pandemic if we had lots of national digital twins working together? David? That's a great question. We'd be in a much better position when it comes to doing testing and tracing and tracking because that's a key part of how we're going to be able to you know, fight the virus. We'll have a vaccine. But who knows whether the vaccine, how well it will work, and indeed, will everybody take it and trust it? And being able to model, you know, where people are going, what they're doing, and if people are owning their own data and their own status about having had tests, you can imagine that getting on an airplane, if you're traveling from here to UK to another country, you know, you could have a digital twin of the transport system and the people in it, and be able to model what's going on in the digital twin with what's actually happening as people are moving around. And from that, start to make predictions about the virus right, and how it's evolving and where it's going. And we'd have much better access to information to help us localize where the virus is strong and therefore, you know, where we have to take care. Because we're very reactive right now, aren't we? You know, you need to go into a 14-day quarantine in a lot of places for very good reasons. And you only really know if your inverted commas flight was infected after the event, after all that sort of stuff happens. And I think there's an interesting connection there between, you know, personal information. At the moment, that's a passport and that's a static piece of information. And a certain country might hold information about 
a specific person's passport on their records, but that's not being shared. Obviously, this this brings up the first major topic, which is international relations and security. That's obviously a huge concern. People sharing their data in some countries is mandatory and in others it's voluntary and in others it's almost frowned upon. And I think the UK is one of those countries where we're very independently minded, I think would be the nicest way of putting it in the sense that we like to hold our own data and we're quite, as a people, quite distrustful of governments and large organizations holding our data, despite the fact that ship has sailed. We are all already giving all of our mobile phone providers lots of very juicy marketing information. I suppose if you're in the utopian state, that's kind of been bridged already, is it? Because you could go to our track and trace issue. And when you start digging into that, data borders seems to have been a big problem with that. When you listen to what's happened in the media with different NHS systems, not being able to speak to different NHS systems, just because that issue would have been resolved. The idea to, I mean, think about the amount of deaths and pain you'd have saved the planet if we could have simulated this the moment it was predicted in Wuhan and then stopped it. I mean, yeah, think about it. In the future, an international pandemic could be prevented in as long as it takes to quarantine the people at patient zero. I mean, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? But now the, uh, but this is talking about it after the, uh, the horse has firmly bolted. The stable door is flapping in the wind. So wouldn't that be a nice place to come? Um, no, I was just going to say, you know, there are some other moving parts in what we're talking about here. You know, we talk about data, but you know, a lot of this is about how we have access to a lot more real-time data, whether it be from, you know, citizens or sensors or other sources. And that was, I think, one of the things that clearly was found to be lacking, you know, at the start of this pandemic. And, you know, closely allied to that is the challenge of identity. You know, we need to understand, especially if we're going to start crowdsourcing data from systems, we need to be able to understand who we're collecting it from. And we need to, you know, people need to be able to opt in for what level of data they're prepared to share. But those kinds of data will be really important if we start trying to understand uh, different behaviors and in order to feed into models. You do lots of modeling of physical things and smart machines, as, as we talked about last time, and, and the built environment, which we're not going to mention again. But it gets much more tricky when we start getting into things like modeling our healthcare system, mm. you know, and I think that's there's lots of exciting things that we can do, everything from optimizing, you know, how things flow around in terms of logistics, but how you design the provision of healthcare to best effect, building obviously models of individual parts of it like hospitals, but also you know, how will people behave in such a process? And, and I think one of the things there is also this whole question of understanding the degree to which people will comply with whatever levers you pull um, mm. in such a system, which has obviously been a key part of the model in this pandemic, is the assumption that you won't get 100% kind of compliance. But that would be great if we had a better better set of models to build better on. Kind of connecting that out and one of our early discussions around the idea of this ecosystem of shared information, the kind of the basis of some of our previous discussions has been around that, the fact that we know that if we can surface this information and make it interoperable, then there's loads of benefits from it. And we can see how that would work in the uh, the context of COVID-19 and some benefits there. But grounding in something outside of the pandemic world, 
maybe going towards to your, your space, Paul, in the food supply chain, how are we seeing the benefits of this connected ecosystem starting to materialise and, and what that then means to a consumer and how they can benefit from it? Because my last piece on that is that that is one of the systems that's really kept us all going through all of this is the fact that our food supply logistics has run relatively smoothly and I'm still eating and gaining weight. It's great. I think, uh, I mean, this is a hot topic at the moment, but, you know, how can we have better data and how can we have better models of our food system? And it's, it's something that we're both involved in. That there's an initiative called Feed UK that is about building a digital twin of the food system for all sorts of reasons, you know, to help optimize it, to better understand the environmental footprint that it has, to increase resilience and all sorts of other things. And I think what's interesting about this is it's it's probably one example of a set of key kind of enabling backbone twins that many others will hang off. And, mm. and so if we imagine a Christmas tree of digital twins, you know, I think understanding our food system might well be one of those core branches. And uh, there's a lot of data to collect. And indeed, there's a lot of data that isn't open data or aren't open data and need to be. So part of this comes back to the whole question of having the infrastructure to allow people to share data, knowing who it will be shared with, for what purpose and in potentially at what cost. Until you've got that in place, then you're not gonna we're not gonna get on to starting to do the modeling. So that that has to be the kind of table stakes in this. And and obviously, you know, hopefully the national data strategy will be a, a big part of delivering that. I, su- I suppose during the, the food system during the pandemic was the single thing that kept everybody going. In reality, the ability to have a warm house and some food was literally everybody's life, wasn't it? For for a significant period of time. So I suppose the idea of the the food network digital twin is a really cool concept. The interesting thing, I suppose, to uh, Sir Henry's on this side of me. Henry, you know, saying about the, the food system being functional, but uh, you see, my local area with local lockdown, going to the supermarket was a bit of a struggle. I think that final mile fulfillment, traveling salesman problems in terms of that that final connection between a supermarket and getting your food home is still is still a problem. How do we deal with that issue? I think it's quite an interesting piece because we can draw a box. You know, I think through, you know, through with your experience, Paul, you've you've drawn a box around a big piece of that logistic system about delivering food. But we're still, I mean, how many people did you have queuing for delivery slots? It's that final connection yes. to the consumer is really critical. And that really interesting point of of that sudden spike in demand and how governments have reacted to that. So with the Welsh government trying to be on the side of smaller businesses by saying you can't have luxuries, but it being really arbitrary how that was organized so that uh, in some supermarkets, sanitary products for women weren't for sale because they were deemed as luxuries under the system that that organization was using. So it was, and that wasn't even the whole of that supermarket chain, that was a specific supermarket. So there's that, yeah, I think that last mile, you're right, is a really, is a key bit, but there's also, there's all sorts of other stuff inside there for these sorts of international crises. You know, we were relatively lucky in this pandemic. The reefers kept arriving at the docks and really the flow of food was into this country was with a 
few exceptions, relatively business as usual. But if we look ahead to a time when perhaps lots of new trade deals and perhaps a very different kind of uh, exogenous shock in the form of, you know, maybe around climate change or whatever, those trade deals might evaporate. People Mm -hmm. we already saw in this pandemic when after a lot of cooperation, suddenly when countries decided they had a a natural resource they needed to keep for themselves, the the, the drawbridges went up. And I think (laughs) you could imagine, so being able to model, having having a digital twin of that kind of web of trade deals that you've signed and being able to war game, you know, what what would happen if this one collapsed? What would happen? If, you know, how realistic is the resilience through diversity, which is the opposite to onshoring? One way is to bring things back in-house, so to speak, so that you're less reliant. And the other is to have a diversity of supply routes that, that creates resilience. But we need to be able to model that kind of stuff and, and see how it would actually stand up. I guess that goes to the interesting question on resilience, and there's probably an angle here for just in time versus just in case, particularly for the the food chain. I'm not sure, David, what your thoughts are on that. So the food system in the UK has evolved to be just in time. You know, food arrives at the supermarket just in time, and it's fresh. Um, it wasn't always that way. I'm old enough to remember when it was just in case, and there was a lot more <laughs> stockpiling, and indeed. Food wasn't always as fresh when it got to the shops and the supermarket. And there's good reason that happened. It's basically more cost-effective for for the supply chain and everybody. But it's not very resilient. Just-in-time isn't very resilient to the point that Paul was making. And what you need in a pandemic situation is just-in-case. You do need to be able to stockpile. And the kind of thing that certainly we've talked about in other forums is... The ability to change the supply chain, like a big dial on the front of it, you know, that says, oh, we need a bit more just in case and a bit less just in time. And so that you can change that and to be able to model that. And I think what Digital Twin allows you to do of the food system, the supply chain in particular, would allow you to get a handle on that. As I understand it, there is very little in the way of modeling of the food supply system in the UK and and this kind of work. The government expects the industry to do it and industry expects government to do it. And there has been some. In the UK, we were very lucky in the pandemic earlier this year that we were able to pivot. Food that used to go to restaurants goes to domestic use because the suppliers of the restaurants were running around in white vans, making deliveries to doors and things. That was done organically. Right? It wasn't like somebody modelled it. And mm. I mean, that's actually, it worked. I think there had been some preparation around Brexit, which gave some indication of what to do. But, you know, we were lucky, right? As soon as everybody piled into the supermarket, it was an issue. So we want to be more resilient. And I think one of the things that digital twins, in connected digital twins in general can do, is make us a more resilient nation. That's one yeah. of the things that we learned. And you know, the ability to connect digital twins, the, the work Mark Enzo was talking about the other week about you know, the digital commons, actually, that's a sovereign capability. Having that software available that allows us to connect digital twins is something that will make the UK resilient, and we need it everywhere. Uh, and you know, our ambition, I think, Paul and I, and the work we're doing is to try and get that off the ground and make it happen. I think that's a really interesting point there about sovereign capability, because when we look at the the marketplace of creating these connected ecosystems, it works within a sector, doesn't it? You know, there's an incentivization for the food sector, let's call it that, to have a a more connected supply chain so anyone could benefit. 
Same with the energy markets, because you naturally need to then balance the grid across the market. So you have to have data sharing, though my back on being energy it's, can be somewhat cumbersome. But the real power is that interconnect between different sectors and different domains. And one thing we've heard from a lot of our, our previous guests has been around the space of the built environment, and that's a lot of the focus. But there's more than just that, really, isn't it? It's It goes further. And I think especially in the realms of being a sovereign capability as well. It's quite interesting where who will own this interconnect? Who's responsible for being a custodian or the steward of it all coming together? The United Nations. There we go. Case closed. Next. Sorry. <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, I was talking earlier about the idea of, you know, what we're going to need to get the data sharing going. That same kind of design pattern, you know, is going to recur. When you want people to share their digital twins, once again, it's got to be able to be done securely. You're going to need to be able to know who you're sharing that twin with, for what purpose. You might be prepared to share it for public good, but you wouldn't necessarily want to share it with your competitor. So you need it for that as a digital asset. You also need it, you're going to need it for machine learning and AI models. And so I think this whole concept of how we manage the controlled sharing of different kinds of digital assets is a is a really important thing for us to build once and be able to use in lots of different places. I'm particularly interested uh, beyond the digital environment in the concept of modeling institutions. So, I, yes, mm. I mean, our healthcare system would be one, but wouldn't it be cool to have a digital twin of national government? I mean, if you're going to start doing smart or smarter kind of operation of government and be able to play around with different models, that would be a good enabler. Uh, even before you start attaching a machine learning model to the whole thing to uh, optimize how you know government works, but you know things like yeah. you know spotting new ways to do collaboration, maybe even new ways to do parts of democracy. You know this is the kind of thing that you could play around with. I can't even conceptualize what a digital twin of government looks like. <laughs> you say that. <laughs> so the inst- Insta twin doesn't really doesn't really. It's like Instagram for twins, is it? <laughs> but um, I, before we depart, though, you, you spoke about you know we were talking about sharing data at scale, and I think one of the things that we always go back to is our idea, our twin internet concept of is is the digital twin merely an ex- the extensibility of the internet, or is it? something else go on david in connecting the digital twins and figuring out you know the ontologies and the middleware if you like and the standards that allow you to do that so that people can you know share data it's just like the journey of establishing the world wide web on top of the internet and if you talk to some of the people that were pioneers at that time you know they they were, they were on a journey where when the first web services were up and running, you know, there wasn't very much happening. There was the dot-com bubble, but and people knew something was going to happen. What really made it go was when Google came along and got search working. There were other search engines around at the time, but Google was the one that worked. And so as a result of that, you could find stuff on other people's servers pretty well. And that made the whole thing take off and people start using it. There is an equivalent to search with connected digital twins, and it's query. You query for information on other people's uh, digital twins. The analogy sticks and goes with it. You know, at scale, you come up to your computer, you log in or your mobile phone, and you log into the twin internet. You log into a connected set of digital twins. And the, the sort of interesting thing to think about is how would you use that? Mm-hmm. What are the possible applications for that? When we talk to, I mean, Paul and I quite often talk to Dame Wendy Hall, who was quite involved in a lot of this. And we say, Wendy, when you were thinking about all this stuff, did you think that people would be sitting on the web 
during the pandemic with you know, on Zoom or Teams calls, able to work remotely, do all the things we do. And she's obviously not. I mean, she did think about having video calls, but not using it the way you do. Equally, none of us at the beginning thought about social media. And when we did get social media, it was utopian. We could share information with each other, stay in touch with our friends. Right? We didn't think about the dystopian version that we've got now, where we are the product of the, you know, the American tech companies and the social networks. I was saying this the other day. Yeah. Do you remember a world where we used to think that the problem with ignorance was a lack of access to information? Yeah. Do you remember that? Those are the yeah. days. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that wasn't the case. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Anyway, so it's social dilemma, not social network, sorry. So and we're seeing it now. And it, wealth is concentrated, fundamentals of biases everywhere, the, the, the foundations of democracy are shaken. Wow, that yeah. came from the web, right? So now you go, okay, I've got connected digital twins and I do query. What's the equivalent? Um, well, it's interesting what you were saying around that because I don't think when... <laughs> They might have conceptualized video calling and other angles when they started creating the internet. But it's the same way, wasn't it, when Steve Jobs stood on stage and kind of held up the iPhone. He did make claims that Apple have reinvented the phone. But what he wasn't claiming is they've also kind of transformed the hotelier business, the taxi business, the apps kind of industry, all as a kind of second order effect that you couldn't necessarily predict. And it caused the interesting question around just the benefits that come with these connected ecosystems that Conceptually, we know it will be fantastic. You know, connect one one computer is fun, but two computers into a network even more fun. Like the internet is even greater in some capacity. That benefit kind of step when it comes to the twinternet, that's really hard to realise. I think, isn't it? And to to actually conceptualise other than it will be yeah, good. I mean, I mean, there's there's obvious things you can think about. You know, I'm looking to buy a house, and I can go and walk around the house. You know, or I might want to check, you know, every product you buy has a digital twin. And so I can look at the digital twin and check its form and function for my purposes. Right? So so there's kind of stuff like that. And then you can commercialize that. You can put put a business model around it somehow to see how you how you'd make money from it. Well, thanks for joining us. Seems like the internet of twins is certainly becoming a thing in our discourse. Are we going to be able to leverage the digital twins of the future the way we leverage the internet now? You know, buying and selling services and perhaps more importantly, sharing pictures of cats and dogs doing cute things. Well, we certainly hope so. I've been Henry Feby-Taylor. This has been the Digital Twin Fan Club Podcast. See you next time.